Hello and welcome to the Online Weekend Experience. My name is Adam and I'm glad you've chosen to jump in and join with us. As we near the end of 2023, I'm not sure if it's been a exciting or an exhausting or maybe a bit of both year from you. Uh, but for many, maybe all of us, it's a uh, season of anticipation, right? Uh, for hundreds of years, since the 4th century, the church has kind of dedicated the weeks prior to Christmas as a season of Advent. There's been many traditions celebrated with prayer and fasting, some the lighting of candles, all with the thematic hope of the arrival of the Messiah, right? It's been a time of anticipation, looking forward and celebrating the birth of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. But also, it's an understanding and awareness that Jesus is coming back, that he is coming uh, to redeem and uh, will rightfully rule here on earth with his people. I believe that there is a uh, character in the story surrounding the birth of Jesus that uh, embodies this idea of uh, hope that we should have awaiting Christ's arrival. There's a guy by the name of Simeon. We're not told of his age, but for many years... Uh, He had gone to the temple, faithfully praying and observing and waiting and anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. He was given a promise through the Holy Spirit that he would lay eyes on uh, God's ultimate culmination and plan of redemption, the Messiah that he would see. And so shortly after uh, Jesus is born, uh, Mary and Joseph go to the temple and uh, Simeon is there. And we see uh, in Luke chapter 2, kind of after the birth of Jesus, this, it says, Simeon took him, Jesus, in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people, Israel. Simeon knew that Jesus was God's plan of redemption for all people. That through faith in the work of the Messiah, that you and I could be made right with God. This is what we celebrate. This is our anticipation. Reflecting on his first coming and arrival that God willingly put skin on, lived a perfect life, died in our place so that he could be reconciled with humanity. But we also have this hopeful expectation and awareness and understanding that he's coming back as a warrior king to rightfully uh, claim his throne, to rule and reign for all eternity. And so we're in this in-between phase where we celebrate and anticipate. And Advent is a season of longing, of reflection, of processing the significance of Christ's return. We've created a uh, Advent kind of study guide 
along with um, our series guide that we'd invite you to look. And what that may mean, there's weekly reflection, kind of prayer, some questions. And I'd invite you and your family uh, to carve out sometimes. Uh, we, as a church in person, will be taking these four Sundays uh, in December to stop, reflect, and celebrate uh, the work of Christ. And so you can find that on our website, norton.gracechurches.org, and find that guide that you may do personally or individually as a time of reflection and anticipation. Father, uh, Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, may we be confident that he is returning as we place our confidence on his first arrival and what we celebrate this Christmas season. I pray that we would have this joyful hope and anticipation as Simeon had for the arrival of the Messiah. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus invites us to follow him, to go where he goes, to do what he does, to think like he thinks, and to love like he loves. That through every habit, decision, conversation, and pursuit, we may become more and more like him. But as we follow and fill our lives with Jesus, there are habits, preferences, and ways of doing things that we must reorder and remove so that he might become greater and we become less. Hey guys, so good to be with you this weekend. And if it's your first time checking things out here, welcome Norton Campus Grace Church. Uh, we're glad you're here. I'm Dan, one of the pastors here. Love the fact you're tuning in. If we've never met, love for you to email. Let us know uh, that you're checking things out. Let us know who you are. But uh, welcome. Uh, if you don't have a church home, I'd like to invite you to come be a part of what's going on here. We have four services. We have 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11. Then we have a 5.30 Sunday evening as well. Love for you to come and uh, join us here. Love to meet you. And then if you don't have plans, Christmas Eve, our Christmas services are the 23rd, 24th. We have two on the 23rd, four on the 24th. You can check those things out. Check out our website. Love for you to come. Last week, started a new series. I'm going to run this right into Christmas. Pastor Aiden did a great job kind of leading us Kicking off this series, we're calling it More and More. And here's why, because we're all becoming more and more of something and therefore less and less of something else. You're either becoming more and more generous and less and less stingy or right? <laughs> maybe you're becoming more and more stingy and less and less generous. I don't know, right? It's Christmas, like loosen up. But uh, you're becoming more and more cheerful, less and less grumpy, right? Or you maybe are coming more and more grumpy, less and less cheerful, more and more optimistic, less and less pessimistic, or more and more pessimistic, less and less optimistic. Uh, more of something, less of something. For John the baptizer, John 3, the guy Aiden taught us about last week, he said this, more of Jesus, less of me. More of Jesus is all about, I want more of Jesus to show up in my life. And that's the fruit of the Spirit, right? I want more of Jesus, less of me. Uh, we actually put a little graphic up there to help you understand this, that as I grow, as I mature, as I follow Jesus, a disciple, right? So if this is what a disciple is, is somebody who loves Jesus more and more, who follows Jesus more and more. And that's what we're saying. 
And so all this led us to some questions. And these fundamental questions, if that's what a disciple is, somebody who loves and follows Jesus more and more, then we said this, these questions, we call them the more and more questions, are incredible questions for us to be asking. Am I loving Jesus more and more? Am I loving who Jesus loves more and more? We're going to talk about that next week. Am I living for what Jesus lives for more and more? These are great questions for you to ask running into Christmas. In fact, do one better than that. I'd find somebody, if you're a follower of Jesus in particular, I'd find somebody who's a follower of Jesus that you can once a week, once a day, whatever it might be, just try it. Run up to Christmas with this. Ask these questions to each other. Am I loving Jesus more and more? Am I loving who he loves more and more? Am I living for what Jesus lives for more and more? That's our question. And we're going to start here. Am I loving Jesus more and more? But I'd like to pray for you. Can I do that? Father, I don't know who all's watching. I don't know all their names. You know their names. But I pray, God, that you would invade this space this time. Teach us what you want to teach us. God, I pray that you would challenge us how you want to challenge us, that you would change us how you want to change us. And we're going to trust you in that. Father, I thank you for my friends watching this. In our next 30, 35 minutes together, I pray God would be life-changing for us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember taking final exams in school? Some of you, high school, others college, maybe grad school. I don't know what. Just the thought of it for some of you like makes you break out in a sweat because you hate tests, right? Final exams. I mean, it's kind of a big moment. Final exams, they represent the professor's opportunity to ask in a comprehensive way the big takeaways from the class, the things that he or she wanted you to take away from your 8, 10, 12, 16 weeks, whatever it was, invest it in the semester, listening to them, learning from them. And so what the final exam does is it boils down the class. And it boils it down so that you have a takeaway. And it's what the professor wanted you to learn. It's what the professor wanted you to get. I remember taking final exams. I remember in college, one in particular, philosophy. I didn't really particularly care for the class, but I remember I stayed up all night studying, although I spent more time hanging out with my friends and didn't study as much because I thought, man, I can, you know, whatever. And I remember I showed up the next day to class and uh, we had a final exam and he gave us blue book. You ever have a blue book? It's like just full of blank pages and three questions. And he said, you should fill that entire blue book with your answers to these three essay questions. I'm like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble right away because multiple choice, you can guess, true, false, 50% chance. But when you got to write essays, you either know it or you don't, right? You either know what you're talking about or you're snowing the professor. So question one, question two, I knew enough about it. I could write some things and I could get by, but question three, I had no idea. I knew I should have studied for it, but I had no idea. And so I started writing some things and eventually I got lost in my thoughts. Christmas break was just looming right in front of me. I looked out the wind, it's beautiful, it's snowing out. And so I just started right there in my blue book, bringing a little snow into my exam, right? I just started just writing crazy stuff. And then in the middle of that, I had the audacity to write this. And I know, and I wrote this to the professor, I know there's no way that you're going to read all of our books, so I'm pretty sure that you're not going to read this far into my book, so that's why I just keep throwing a little snow your way, is what I said to him. Can I tell you something? I was wrong. <laughs> he, he read all those books, and he read that. 
Uh, he put a little smiley face, but I did not do well on that particular question. I don't recommend that. If you're in school, I don't recommend doing that, right? Uh, but, but there's some final exams, right, that uh, that you remember. Uh, one in particular, some of them end up being a surprise. I told you this a couple of months ago. Walter Bettinger is the CEO of Charles Schwab, told about a final exam. Uh, he said this, it, that he was in a business strategy course, had 4.0 average all the way through, and he wanted to graduate with a 4.0. But it came down to the final exam in this particular business course. Here's what he said. I spent many hours studying and memorizing formulas to do all the calculations for case studies. The teacher, the day of the final exam, came in, handed out the final exam. It was one piece of paper, which really surprised me because I figured it'd be longer than that. Every, once everyone had their paper, the teacher said, go ahead and turn it over. Both sides of the paper were blank, he says. Next, the professor said, I've taught you everything I can teach you about business in the last 10 weeks. But the most important message, the most important question is this. What's the name of the lady who cleans this building? Bettinger said that had a powerful impact on him. It was the only test he ever failed. He got to be in the course, and he said, I deserved it. Some final exams are surprising. The question isn't what you expected. And then there's those final exams that you need to pass because you are pretty sure going into it, you're failing the course. Here's my question today as we run into what I want to look at. What happens when Jesus gives the final exam? Are you with me? What happens when Jesus does it? And what happens when Jesus gives the final exam and you feel up to this point, maybe you're failing the course? I got to think that's what Peter thinks, John 21. If you grab a Bible and go there with me, John 21, Jesus gives a final exam. And Peter had been following Jesus not for 10 weeks, not for 12 weeks, not for 16 weeks, but we have about a three-year period here where Peter is learning from following, going to class in the class of Jesus. And I got to think that in John 21, he feels like maybe I'm failing at this point. And so you know the story of Peter. Remember Peter's story? Luke 5 begins and Peter's a fisherman, rough and tumble. And all of a sudden, along comes the carpenter's boy, Jesus, who turned preacher. And you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to turn Peter's boat into a pulpit. Preachers have a way of doing that, right? They'll turn anything into a pulpit. And so he gets in the boat, starts preaching, and then he has the audacity, carpenter's son, now preacher, to tell the fisherman, Peter, how to fish. They've been struggling all night, and they'd caught nothing. And you got to think Peter's like, what are you telling me, man? And, and, and he tells him, I want you to cast the net here, and he does, and they bring in this, this catch of fish that was unbelievable, changed Peter's life, and then Jesus says, you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. It changed Peter's life, changed the trajectory. In fact, Peter and the other disciples, those who would have followed some fishermen, thought th this might be the guy who's going to lead us out of captivity to the Romans. This might be the guy who's going to restore the favor and the blessing of Israel. This might be the guy. And so Peter saw Jesus do incredible things, touch the leper and heal him, bring back the sight to the blind guy, restore the limbs to the paralytic, feed 5,000 men plus women and children with a little boy's lunch. And then the day, you remember that? Then the day he actually watched as Jesus called a dead man out of the tomb. It's like, man, this might be the guy. Peter, the fisherman, now the follower, heard Jesus teach him incredible things. Truth of the matter is that he used these little obscure stories, but Peter was always glad that he explained them later. Uh, he was unconventional at times, yet he drew a big crowd until all of a sudden he wasn't drawing the crowd. 
all was good till it got a little confusing and Jesus started teaching things that didn't necessarily didn't necessarily sound consistent with somebody who was trying to take over and be a Messiah and kind of run this revolution. Jesus started to say things like this, you want to be great, serve. And then he actually did this crazy thing when he had the disciples together in this room. You remember it? Where Jesus washed their feet. And Peter, impulsive as he was, like, you ain't doing that to me. There ain't no way not doing that. And Jesus said, if I don't, you have no part with me. You remember that? But then the thing that really got Peter is when Jesus looked at them and we're going to do this thing, we're going to, man, he might be the guy, I'm going to follow him. I left everything to go. And then Jesus said, I'm going to go, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. And Jesus like, y'all are going to kind of scatter. You remember Peter's response? Like, they might, they, they might, I won't. Peter's like, you're going to, you're going to, I'm going to be with you. Jesus like, you're going to deny me. Not once, not twice, but three times. You remember in the garden? At first, Peter looks like he's right. One of the disciples betrays Jesus. The rest of them desert Jesus, not Peter. He follows, and he's in the courtyard. And you remember, you can, 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 the, the fisherman, now follower, finds himself around a fire. Around a fire, remember that, and he's warming himself. And as he warms himself three times, not once, not twice, but three times, he is asked, don't you, aren't you associated with Jesus? Aren't you a follower of Jesus? And three times, do you remember what he did? Remember what he did? He denied that he had any association with Jesus, that he knew Jesus was a follower of Jesus. And then they killed Jesus. I got to think Peter felt like a failure. They buried Jesus. Jesus, though, promised he would come back to life, and he did, and Already, by the time we get to John 21, he's appeared twice to the disciples. But I wonder what's going through Peter's mind. Because in John 21, we find Peter. You know what we find him doing? Fishing again. And you know what we find? Fishing again with familiar results. Every time he's mentioned fishing, guess what? He does. I, I bet he's a great fisherman, but every time he talks about him fishing, man, he, he's not catching anything. In John 21, we see Peter fishing again. Familiar results. He's not catching a thing. And then there's this familiar voice on the shore. He's heard that voice. And that voice gives some familiar instructions. Why don't you guys cast your net over there instead of there? And the result is familiar. All of a sudden, they pull in so many fish, it begins to tear their nets. And in fact, they counted the fish, 153 large fish. Peter's so excited, he has a familiar reaction. One time in his story, he got out of a boat and walked on water for a little bit of time. This time he knows this is Jesus on the shore. And so he jumps out the boat, sloshing and splashing and getting to Jesus. And when he gets to shore, fisherman follower finds himself around a fire again with Jesus. It's interesting. Jesus had made breakfast. Can you feel the moment? Almost deja vu begins to come back, the smells, the senses, the sights. And that's when Jesus administers the final exam. You see, here's the deal. Peter spent three years with Jesus, the master teacher, and Jesus has three questions on the final exam. They're not the questions you'd think. It wasn't, hey, Peter, I taught you how to pray, so what did I teach you? What are the points? Uh, Peter, what were the main points of the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, Peter, what did you take away? What's the best thing to do when you have 5,000 hungry men and just a little boy's lunch? Oh, you didn't ask that. 
He didn't even ask him questions about his most recent failure. Peter, what were you thinking? How could you? That wasn't his questions. He had three questions. Actually, to be honest, Jesus had one question he asked three times on the final. Do you see it? When they finished eating their breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, here it is, do you love me more than these? Peter answers, yes, Lord. Jesus said, I've heard lip service before. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, I want more than lip service, feed my lambs, serve my church. If the answer is yes, then show me by feeding my lambs. I told you I would teach you to fish for men. Now I'm charging you to feed my lambs, to shepherd my flock, lead my church, is what he's saying. That wasn't enough because Jesus, again, second time, second question, final exam, Simon, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, I need you to feed them and take care of them. Like as you lead my church, I want you to feed them, but I, I need you to make sure you're taking care of them. The third time. You got to think by this time that Peter has PTSD, right? Post third question stress syndrome, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, there's a part of you that's got to think to yourself that, that he would have had deja vu and that he would have remembered the third time that somebody asked him if he belonged to Jesus, was associated with Jesus. And the book of Mark says that he was so distraught by the third time they asked this that he called down curses on them and he began to swear. The third time, Jesus says, Simon, do you love me? Peter's hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Lead my church. Three final questions to the guy who denied him three times. I don't think that is a coincidence. Do you love me, Peter? The final exam isn't, did you get all the points in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you, can you outline for me the things that I taught here, the final exam was three questions. Do you love me? Jesus, the professor, Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the leader is making it obvious that in his three-year course of following him, there is a three-question test. Might I say a one-question, ask three times test. And the question is, do you love me? You ever wonder what Jesus might ask you if he were to show up right now in your living room, in the car, sitting in the seat beside you? I think some of us have a wrong idea. Maybe we think to ourselves, if Jesus showed up, he'd want to know, where have you been? He'd, he'd maybe look at us and say, what are you thinking? He might show up and say, how could you have done that? Like, like we begin to manufacture questions in our mind that Jesus might ask. And I would suggest to you, John 21 maybe tells us that Jesus was sitting in the seat as you're listening to this, sitting in the living room, having a cup of coffee with you, that he might turn to you and say, hey, it's time for a final exam. And my question is this, do you love me? I want you to write this down. The question I want you to entertain is, do I love Jesus? What a great question. What a penetrating question. Can I even say this? What an exposing question. You're like, Dan, that sounds like a simple question. Maybe it's not as simple as we think. Do I love Jesus is the question. 
But I got to think to myself, do I love Jesus or do I simply love what Jesus does for me? Here's what I mean. Do I love Jesus or do I love the blessings and the benefit that come along with Jesus? The whole idea of forgiveness, escaping the wrath of God thing, the whole abundant life and eternal life thing. And certainly, who doesn't want to go to heaven? Like, like if we really think about this, I got to ask, do I love Jesus? Or do I love what Jesus does for me? John Piper in his book says, the critical question for our generation, y'all take a picture of this, and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness, all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? What a question. What an exposing question. What a thought-provoking question. Truth be told, many of us love the blessings and the benefit of Jesus. We love the idea of Jesus. We love what Jesus represents, but that's not the question. It's like saying, I love the blessings and the benefit of marriage. I love the idea of marriage. I love the picture of marriage. The fact of the matter is, I love Jennifer. You see, the same thing here. We begin to think, I love the benefits, the blessings. I love what it represents, the idea that, that comes along with Christianity. And the question that Jesus asks isn't that, but it's like, do you love me? It's directly connected to what Jesus said was the first and greatest commandment. Do I love Jesus is connected with this. They ask him, what's the absolute greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength in another gospel. That's the first and greatest commandment. And there are a lot of you and us who may say this, Dan, that's an easy answer. I love God. I hear this all the time. People say to me, I love God. But the question is, do I love Jesus? And you cannot, listen close, Lena, and you cannot separate the two. And I think Peter's mind when he was asked this question might have flashed back to a conversation. I would even say a standoff. Jesus had with some religious people that if this is the most important command that all of the commandments of God sum up, love God, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus looks at Peter and says, do you love me? And I cannot separate my love for God from my love for Jesus. John 8, in the standoff with the religious leaders, he says, if God were really your father, Jesus says, you would love me. For I've come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. If, 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 if God's your father, you would love me. To love Jesus, listen close, lean in, is to believe that he is exactly who he said he was. And, and, and if he is exactly who he said he was, it's a game changer. Because if Jesus is who he said he was, that means this, to love God is to love Jesus. And to love Jesus is to love God. He's saying this, that if you simply believe that Jesus was a good guy, a good teacher, a good example, uh, uh, maybe even a faithful prophet and preacher, if you're like, that's who he was, you do not love Jesus. Because he, Jesus, never left us with that option. The question is, do I love Jesus? Do, do I believe completely wholeheartedly that he is God in the flesh 
come to rescue us, that he is the savior of the world, died in the place of all of us, that he is the living, resurrected Lord, therefore the coming king. Do I believe and trust that he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he did? Do I love Jesus? Because I can't love God and not believe Jesus is who he says he is as a game changer. Jesus said this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, they're the ones who love me. He says more than lip service. Peter, I think, would have remembered this in John 14. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I'll love him and manifest, show myself to him. Judas said, Lord, how is it that you'll show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus said, if anyone loves me, if you love me, you'll keep my word. You'll, you'll follow. That's why a disciple is somebody who loves and follows Jesus more and more. And my father will love him and we'll come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me won't keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. And then the next chapter, John 15, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Now I want you to abide, stay, remain in my love. How do we do that? If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. That, that, like, that's how it works. We're going to stay in this relationship. This, Just as I have kept my Father's commands, he's like, I showed you, and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Like this idea of loving Jesus and abiding, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. If you love me, you'll remain in my word. If you love me, you'll follow me more and more. That's what he's saying. And that's the secret to joy. Sometimes we chase joy and our chase of joy takes us from remaining in Jesus and his word and obeying him. He says, you're missing the secret of joy. That's interesting to me. He says, if you love me, you'll believe that I am exactly who I say I am. And if I am exactly who I say I am, if you love me and believe that, then you'll trust me and follow me. And if you trust me and follow me, you'll love me by listening to me and obeying me. And then he says this, and this is my command, that you love one another. He says, if you love me and you trust me, then you'll obey me and you'll love the people I love more and more. That's next week. And if you're listening to me and obeying me, you'll live like and live for what I live for more and more. That's the third week. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. I think what he's saying is if you love me, you will believe I am who I say I am. You'll trust me. You'll follow me. You'll abide in my word. You'll Love those that I love, live for what I live for, and even, ready, ready, listen, even, ready, even, even be willing, ready, to sacrifice your very life for me. Let's just go back to John 21. He said to Peter, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself. You went where you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you. And lead you where you do not want to go. Look at this. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And he says, follow me. Just follow me. 
Peter wants to take it. He turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, the guy writing it, John. And he said, hey, Peter said, Lord, what about him? I would have too. Because sometimes in religion, what we do is we expect, well, if I get into the religion, everything's going to work out the same. He said, what about him? Got the same thing? Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. Listen, listen. The question is, ready? Listen. Do I love Jesus? Not simply do I love what he gives me, the blessings and the benefits, but do I love him and do I love him, ready? Enough to follow my personal call on my life, even if it's different than his call on your life. That's the litmus test for whether I'm really joining a religion or in a relationship. He has a personal call, and, and he's Peter. Well, some of you are saying this, Dan, I love Jesus. Well, let's go back, see what he said. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Look at this. Say it out loud. More than what? More than, more than these. That's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, what's he talking about? Well, maybe the question that we could ask is, do I love Jesus more than these? And when Jesus asked Peter this question, uh, commentators are all over the place on this. Like, what was he talking about? Uh, there's a couple options. I think they all could work, right? Uh, maybe Jesus is looking at the 153 large fish, and he's like, do you love me more than these? Like, you're so excited about this catch of fish. Uh, that would make sense. They just caught 153 large fish. That would have been a big catch, a trophy night, ripped their nets. Like, they'd have had a lot to brag about in town. Dinner's on us, right? That would have provided for them financially. And, and maybe, just maybe, he's saying, do you love me more than the praise this is going to give you, the notoriety and the possessions that it's going to afford you? Do you love me more than these? I can't help but think that Peter's mind would have raced back to some tense exchanges Jesus had with the religious leaders. One of them in particular, Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were, what, lovers of money, heard these things and they ridiculed Jesus. I see what we end up loving, we end up serving. For some of us, we're just like the Pharisees, maybe. It's like, do I love Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus, but do I love him more than these? Do I love him more than I love money? Do I love him more than I love getting ahead financially? Do I love him more than I love accumulating possessions? Now, the Pharisees weren't just lovers of money. Other parts said they were lovers of the best seats in the house. And I got to ask myself, do I love Jesus more than the notoriety, the, the praise from men, the power, the position? I think maybe he's saying to Peter, like, look at these fish. Do you love me more than these? Do I love Jesus more than these, more than the things my money can buy? Or am I like the Pharisees that when I read this, I think to myself, oh, wow, there's the dividing line. I'm a Like when Jesus asks me to do something that affects my wallet, maybe affects my possessions, affects my finance, whatever it might be, I love Jesus more than these. Uh, maybe it wasn't the fish Jesus was talking about. Maybe he's like, do you love me more than these? And I don't know, maybe he's saying it like, you really love me more than these? Because do you remember what Peter said? Peter said, when Jesus said, hey, 
Everybody's going to scatter. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And maybe Jesus is like, hey, I remember one time you said this. Do you, you're kind of saying, hey, you know, I'm going to be there even though everybody else isn't. And maybe Jesus is just going back to that and saying, do you love me more than these? Or maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus was referring not to the fish and not to that, but maybe he's saying, do you love me more than these relationships? Uh, he, Peter fished with his brother, uh, his friends. Peter was married. And, and maybe Jesus is like, do you love me more than your family, more than your wife, more than your brother, more than your fishing buddies? And maybe at that point, Peter's mind would have went back to Matthew 10. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. And if you love your, what? Son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. This one's a little harder, right? Do I love Jesus more than I love my family? Do I love Jesus more than I love my wife? Do I love Jesus more than I love my kids? What's Jesus teaching here? Do I love Jesus more than these? Well, maybe what Jesus is teaching here is something that is counterintuitive, but it is true. That when I love Jesus most, first, best, when I love him most, I'll love what matters more. It's counterintuitive, friends. That if I want to love my wife better, it's going to be because I love Jesus most. And I think, antithetically, when I love Jesus most, I'll let go of what doesn't matter more. I'll love Jesus more and more, and I'll begin to let go of the things that don't matter. Loving Jesus most is the secret to loving my wife more. Loving Jesus most is the secret to loving my family more. I think that's the point. You see, the question is, do I love Jesus? Do I love the person? That's all about the person. Do I love Jesus, the person, or just what he gives to me? Do I love Jesus more than these? That's the priority. Is he first? Is he most? But I think it leads to the final question for today anyways, that he asked us three times. That maybe he's not just wanting to make sure Peter loves the person and that there's a priority, but... Maybe the question that we need to leave with is, am I loving Jesus more and more? Maybe the reason you ask it three times is that. that. My wife and I do this thing with each other. I love you. And she'll say, I love you more. And I'll say, I love you more. And I go back. It's like just, I don't know. I don't know. It's a cute little game, right? I, I think the fact of the matter is that when I do this with Jesus, he always wins. What is the secret to loving Jesus more and more? I think the secret is found in a story. Can we end with this? Like, like, how do you and I love Jesus more and more? The story's found in Luke 7. You don't need to turn there. Let me just show it to you. In Luke 7, one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders, invites Jesus to have dinner with him. Uh, when they would have had dinner, there would have been honored guests, Jesus. Uh, the courtyard might have been full of people interested to hear what Jesus had to say. 
Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. They would have sat maybe on elbow, feet reclining out back, table here, and maybe uh, the Pharisee across the table from him. It says this, that at that point in time when Jesus is reclining, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, I really think most commentators think, and I think it's safe to say that she probably was a prostitute, somebody who was sexually promiscuous, she learned, she heard Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house because it probably would have made the news, right? Man, Jesus coming to town, invited him over. Courtyard might have been just full of people. So she makes her way there, of all the people. I mean, really. Talk about an uninvited guest. She came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. That would have been interesting, this clay jar full of perfume that maybe was a tool of her trade. And then she has the audacity to break through the crowd, stand right behind Jesus, the guest of honor, this Pharisee's guest of honor. And then she starts crying. Talk about make a scene. She begins to wet his feet with her tears. She's crying so hard. Can you imagine crying that hard? She's standing there. She then kneels and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair and she kisses his feet and then she takes that alabaster jar and pours this perfume on them and the aroma just fills the room it's almost like she could care less that there's this whole group of people watching she could care less that the pharisee is sitting across the table from jesus she in this like moment of just unbridled passion for Jesus begins weeping with brokenness begins begins pouring this perfume with adoration for Jesus when the Pharisee the host who invited him saw this underline this he said to himself he's thinking to himself if this man Jesus so he's curious if this man were really a prophet, who he said he was, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. She is a sinner. He was right. She was a sinner. And he's saying, if Jesus, he's singing this to himself. It's fascinating, right? He's like, I don't know this guy's always cracked up to me because if he really knew, he'd know that woman has a reputation. I love this. Jesus answered him. There's no indication that the Pharisee said it out loud. But Jesus answered him. And look at this, Simon. Simon, does that name sound familiar? This Pharisee's name is Simon. Peter's name, Simon Peter. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon says, tell me. Like he's curious now. He says, let me tell you a little story. Now you can cut the tension with a knife. This, this event just happened in the middle of my dinner. And two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii, lots of money. The other 50, an amount, but not as much. Neither of them had the money to pay back. Ne neither of them, both are bankrupt. Both are zeroed out. They have nothing. So... 
The money lender forgave, canceled the debts of both of them. Which of them, here it are, right? Underline, will love him more. Goodness story. Simon knows the answer, I suppose. You almost hear a little hesitation because he's like, I don't know where this is going. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus jumps on the answer, you have judged correctly. That's right. Makes sense, right? 500, this big sum of money. Makes sense. Both owed, both couldn't pay, both forgiven. The one who owed the bigger debt. Then Jesus turns to the woman. Tears, her hair is down, which would have been unusual. Perfume filling the room. And he says, do you see this woman? What a dumb question. You got to think. Like Simon's got to be thinking, how could I miss her? She ruined my dinner. Uh, I came into your house, Simon. You didn't give me any water for my feet. She did. But they, they, they literally came from her broken heart. She's wet them with her tears, a heart that's broken and grateful. And then she wiped them with her hair. You didn't have a towel to wipe them. She wiped them with, with, with her hair. You didn't give me the traditional hospitable kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. She's a big sinner, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, I would, little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this guy? Forgive sins. Jesus said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. The, the woman loved Jesus more and more, and it was evident in her unbridled passion. Simon the Pharisee had this cautious like approach to Jesus. He's going to check things out. It's more like pursuing trivia. It's more like, I'm going to just check it out and get some knowledge if he really was, and I'm not sure. And this, not her, man. This unbridled passion, she could not contain herself. Why did she love him more? Is it simply because she was the sinner in the room? She was the bigger sinner and everyone knew it? Nope. She just happened to be one of two sinners in the scene. She just happens to be the one who figured it out. I need you to know something. Spiritual maturity is not knowing more and more facts about Jesus. Spiritual maturity is not doing more and more things simply for Jesus. Spiritual maturity is not needing less and less grace. But spiritual maturity is being more and more aware of the grace that I, you, we need. Spiritual maturity is loving Jesus more and more because spiritual maturity is more of an excavation project. I'm going to excavate. It's not proving you love Jesus, but it's discovering, it's discovering how much he loves you. And your response is to love him more and more as you discover more and more of his love for you. Spiritual maturity is not pointing the finger of my opinion at a world and asking what is wrong with this world, but spiritual maturity is looking into the mirror and realizing I'm what's wrong and he loves me. I love what author Tyler Statton says. 
in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, he said one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the modern church is to reimagine spiritual maturity as the need to confess less. The unspoken assumption is, as I send in relationship with God, I confess less because I have less to confess. True spiritual maturity is the direct opposite. It's not ascension. It's more like an archaeological dig as we discover layer after layer of what is in all of us. Spiritual maturity means more confession, not less. Maturity is discovering the depths of my personal brand of fallenness and the depths of which God's grace has really penetrated even without knowing it. A maturing community is a confessing community. A maturing disciple is a confessing disciple. Not a church without sin, not a disciple without sin, but a church or a disciple without secrets. You see, I think the secret to loving Jesus more and more is to continue to dig, to realize more and more of my need of his grace in my life. Here's the questions. Am I loving Jesus more and more? Next week, we'll cover these. But the question is this, do I love Jesus? Or do I just love what he does for me? And then I gotta ask, do I love Jesus more than these? More than possessions, more than power, more than praise from men? And is he the first love of my life? And then here's the question I want you to ask. And I would love for you to ask these questions to somebody this week. What's my plan to love Jesus more and more? To be the woman in Luke 7, where I eventually get to this place where I have this unbridled passion and worship in response to the one who loves me. Father, I thank you that you love us and that you demonstrated that love for us by sending Jesus for us while we were still sinners. There are some watching this right now who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And that might be you. And right this moment, you can pray, God, I believe you love me. I know and confess and agree with you I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, was buried and rose again. And today I want to say yes to Jesus as the Savior of my life, as the Lord and leader of my life, and as the king that I'll serve the rest of my life. And if you prayed that prayer, I'd love to hear from you. But God, I pray that you would help us to love Jesus more and more. In Jesus' name.